Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're going to talk about Grand Theft Auto, lawsuits, copyright, reverse engineering, fair use, and more. But before we do, we're a Patreon-supported channel. And at our highest tier of Patreon support, we have patrons that are sponsoring specific episodes, and I could not thank them more. Today, this episode is sponsored by Falcus Vipus, who told me that they love videos and commentary on copyright and fair use. And I thought looking at the lawsuit that Take-Two Interactive has entered into against people that are trying to reverse engineer their Grand Theft Auto products was a perfect place to have this sponsorship land. So I want to say thank you to Falcus Vipus. And let's talk about what has happened. Here's a VGC article entitled, Take-Two is suing the creators of GTA 3 and Vice City reverse engineering projects. The RE3 project has rebuilt the games to port them to modern systems like the Switch. The suit, which was filed in California, is aimed at 14 programmers from around the world who have been working together to make derivative source code for both games. You should probably understand you're already in a little bit of trouble if the reporters are using the term derivative to describe what you are doing. The result is the RE3 project, which offers the fully reversed source code for GTA 3 and GTA VC Vice City, as well as ports of the games for Switch, Wii U, and Vita. The kind of reverse engineering the RE3 project team do is technically made legal per VGC. We're going to talk about this in just a second. Because the fans involved do not use leaked source code, and instead recreate the original games from scratch using modern coding languages. They take the object code, the machine-readable version of the video game, they decompile it, and then they clean up that decompilation so they aren't using the direct source code that Take-Two and Rockstar would have written in human-readable format to actually make these games operate. They think, and VGC and some others hint at the fact that they think that that's legal or in some way better than common infringement. We're going to talk about that in just a second because I think there's a lot of confusion here. And in all honesty, I don't blame the reverse engineering teams for the confusion. You'll see that when we discuss the lawsuit itself, where I think Take-Two has gone a little bit too far in some of their claims because I, I don't see some of the stuff that they see. Continuing with the article, the project also contains no actual Rockstar created assets such as music, dialogue, and imagery, so players need to own a copy of GTA 3 to build their own port using the reverse engineered code. So it's effectively a bracketing kind of concept where you have to use your own GTA 3 disc or access point to use it with this particular project to have it on your Switch or your Wii U or your PC or what have you. Recently, a similar fan effort was able to fully reverse engineer Super Mario 64 and port it to PC and other platforms. Those efforts took more than two years, and so far Nintendo has not taken legal action against its creators. Despite this, Take-Two is now suing the programmers who worked on the GTA project. A couple of things here. One, in this paragraph about Nintendo, if there is infringement here, we're going to discuss that particular question as part of this video. One of the things, if you've been in virtual legality for a while now, you probably recognize is that Nintendo choosing not to sue over anything does not indicate the lawfulness of that particular activity. We call that in this space largesse. 
the fact that Electronic Arts has a license that doesn't necessarily let you stream their game on Twitch doesn't mean they have to sue you over it unless they don't like you, at which point they can drop the hammer and you're otherwise operating at the largesse of the copyright holder. Nintendo might well think that it could sue over a fully reverse engineered Super Mario 64 and has elected for strategic or other reasons not to do so. It's not really indicative of whether the activity itself is legal. Now, why is this happening? I think VGC makes the point loud and clear here at the end of the article. Reports last month, which matched what VGC has heard from its own sources, stated that Rockstar is preparing to release remastered versions of GTA 3, Vice City, and San Andreas on all modern systems, including the Switch. So what you have here is a scenario, much like we saw years ago with respect to Metroid, for instance, in which a copyright holder might have largesse for a while, and then when they decide that they want to enter into a market, they want to make some money with the intellectual property that they own. They're the copyright holders of, they look to what might be otherwise blocking or lowering the profits that they might otherwise make in that market and sending out the cease and desist letters, or in this particular case, a DMCA takedown notice. Finally, the article says, the RE3 project is the latest example of programmers trying to port copyrighted games to other systems by reverse engineering them and rebuilding their source code from scratch so it isn't technically using any actual elements of the original work. Again, that's the journalist here speaking. That's going to be an open legal question and a novel one, I think, in most jurisdictions that says if your particular code only works with the functionality of another set of copyright-held code, then is your code actually not using actual elements? And I would say it's probably still going to be held to use those elements. It's a derivative. It needs the other thing to live and breathe. But reasonable minds can differ on that. And as you've we've talked about extensively in this space, intellectual property law is a very gray area, and you can get different judges that say different things about this all the time. But on the back of this article, on the back of articles in Eurogamer that says things like under US law, reverse engineering is generally legal. I've had a number of people ask me to talk about this particular lawsuit because it's not as clear as VGC or Eurogamer says here, generally legal. Reverse engineering is an odd duck. So let's talk about that particular duck as part of this conversation. First, we have to set the ground rules as we do here in virtual legality. Copyright is an exclusive set of rights held by somebody that makes something creatively. Under the United States law, which is what this lawsuit is premised on, we'll talk about that as part of the lawsuit as well, a copyright holder gets this bundle of rights and they include the right to reproduce what they own, the right to prepare derivative works based upon the copyright work, things that interact with the thing that they originally made, to distribute copies of the work, to perform the work, to display the work. They are exclusively held rights by the people and company that made the game originally. Now, the most common way to get around that, and I think it's kind of implied in some of the responses we see from the people at issue here, is to call your use fair use, right? 17 USC 107, notwithstanding the exclusive rights that are held by a copyright holder, you are allowed to do things such as criticize, comment, news report, teach, based on another's individual copyright held work, as long as the court determines that it's fair use. And it's going to base that on balancing of a number of factors, purpose and character, whether it's commercial, whether you're trying to make money off of it, whether the copyrighted work is 
a natural kind of phenomenon, whether it's created. Something like Grand Theft Auto is a created work. It's not a picture of a volcano or a building or something like that. So it's going to be a little bit more protected than otherwise. How much you used of it, here you could argue the point. We're not really using any of it. You could also argue the point the opposite way. You're using all of it when all is said and done. It's designed to create a new version of something in its entirety. And number four, the effect of the use upon the potential market. You can't get fair use easily if you can show as a copyright holder that this particular infringing use of your copyrighted material will negatively impact your ability to sell your copyrighted material. And here, it's clear that Rockstar and Take-Two are working on ports to sell into the market that this particular project might otherwise already be depleting by its very existence. So these are the ways in which we talk about copyright at its baseline, but why do folks like VGC and Eurogamer hint at the notion that reverse engineering might be legal in the US? Well, there's a number of reasons, and we've talked about them here in Virtual Legality. If you want to check out a video that we did on Slippy and Nintendo canceling a Super Smash Brothers, I believe it's Melee tournament, please do check it out. That has a long-form discussion about reverse engineering, particularly of consoles and console-adjacent uh, code, because that's where most of the jurisprudence on this question is. But reverse engineering in general, I believe, is thought to be allowed under U.S. law for the most part, because people kind of go off of this Sega versus Accolade line of cases and understanding. If you aren't familiar with this case, don't blame me. It's the early 90s. But Accolade essentially took a Genesis, a Sega Genesis, wired it up to figure out what the inputs and outputs were, and used that to make their own games that didn't have to be licensed by Sega to operate on the Genesis. And they absolutely 100% had to go in and reverse engineer what the Genesis was doing. But the court held that that was okay. They said, we are asked to determine first whether the Copyright Act permits persons who are neither copyright holders nor licensees to disassemble a copyrighted computer program in order to gain an understanding of the unprotected functional elements of the program. In light of the public policies underlying the act, the fact that the Copyright Act wants more creation and competition, et cetera, et cetera, we conclude that when the person seeking the understanding has a legitimate reason for doing so, and when no other means of access to the unprotected elements exists, such disassembly is, as a matter of law, a fair use of the copyrighted work, even though the fair use statute that we just read doesn't really talk about those particular kinds of things. So this is the baseline rule. I think this is what people have kind of, in the zeitgeist, taken in conceptually. The United States allows reverse engineering. But especially if this isn't your first trip to virtual legality, you know that there's a whole host of things that are baked into the language here that we can dissect, right? You're allowed to do this. It permits persons who are neither copyright holders nor licensees to disassemble in order to gain an understanding of what? The unprotected functional elements of a program. The copyright laws cannot protect ideas, functionality, concepts like that. They protect the expression of those ideas. So to the extent that you've got something like an operating system on a Sega Genesis, you can go in and get the functional information that you need if you follow these specific rules. In light of the public policies underlying the act, we conclude that when you're seeking an understanding and have a legitimate reason for doing so, Accolade wants to make games that operate on the Sega Genesis. And when there's no other way to get them, reverse engineering, disassembly, is as a matter of law, a fair use 
of the copyrighted work. But this applies only to unprotected elements, not expression. And it applies specifically to having a legitimate reason for using something. The rule that allows reverse engineering does not get you out of the copyright infringement question. Are you infringing on another's copyright with the thing that you make based on your reverse engineering? And maybe some other people read the DMCA, for instance, and think, oh, there's an exception specifically for reverse engineering. It says, notwithstanding the provisions above, those provisions in the DMCA that say you're not allowed to avoid or bypass a technological security measure, and we'll talk about that as part of the lawsuit as well, a person who has lawfully obtained the right to use a copy of a computer program may circumvent a technological measure that effectively controls access to a particular portion of that program. They can go around something that's protecting the source code, for instance, for the sole purpose of identifying and analyzing those elements of the program that are necessary to achieve interoperability of an independently created computer program with other programs. To the extent any such acts of identification and analysis do not constitute infringement under this title. So again, we've got a general rule where codified in the United States statutes, there is a notion that reverse engineering is okay in certain respects, primarily related to interoperability of things like systems, of hardware. This is how you get the line of cases where you've got Accolade and Sega and you've got Sony and Bleem and you've got all these other kinds of conversations where in respect of operating other software, you can reverse engineer the functional components so that you can have competing software. The United States likes markets, the Copyright Act likes creativity, that kind of thing. What this doesn't extend to is things that otherwise infringe. And a copy of an existing computer program like Grand Theft Auto 3 or Grand Theft Vice City is not going to get any benefit from the reverse engineering exceptions set forth herein. And, and it gets a little bit worse than that, but we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Let's look at the lawsuit now. Take-Two Interactive versus these developers. What are they complaining about? What do they want redress for? One, a kind of generic copyright infringement. And two, violation of 17 USC 512F. And if that doesn't ring any bells, I can't blame you for that either. That's the DMCA takedown provisions that we know and love. The ones that say, hey, if you want to take something down that's infringing, you go and you tell YouTube or you tell Twitch, or in this case, you tell GitHub, I believe. And if you want to say, no, they're wrong about that, you counterfile a notice and say, no, they're wrong, put it back up. In this particular case, the developers actually went so far as to file a counter notification and Take-Two is accusing them of knowingly falsifying the information in that counter notification. It's one of the areas where I think Take-Two goes too far because they're trying to establish certain things that we'll talk about as part of this video. So, we go through the preliminaries. Hey, we're Take-Two. Hey, we make Grand Theft Auto. What do we want to tell the court is the problem here? Defendant's conduct is knowing, willful, and deliberate. That's the primary starting point of their main claim paragraph. And that's important because what they're trying to do with this document is really frighten the developers here. And we'll talk about why that particular sentence does that in just a second, but that's why they're going to hit hard, hard, hard that this was knowing, this was malicious, they knew what they were doing, all these kinds of things, because if they can get the court to agree with that, there's a lot more liability exposure on the part of the defendants. They continue, defendants are well aware that they do not possess the right to copy, adapt, or distribute derivative GTA source code or 
the audiovisual elements of the games and that doing so constitutes copyright infringement. Now, that audiovisual elements one is interesting because it pops up in a couple of places. Remember in the articles that we just read, the implication was that this particular project wasn't using anything from the games themselves. Take two disagrees. Defendant Poppenhoff even stated publicly that he was very much worried about Take-Two's discovery of the RE3 and REVC projects. And we'll talk about that later on in this document. When Take-Two attempted to remove defendants' infringing source code from the internet, at least three defendants, acting in at least one instance with other defendants' participation and direction, knowingly filed bad faith counter notifications that materially misrepresented the legality of their content, apparently claiming that because they allegedly reverse engineered the game's source code, they somehow cannot be liable for copyright infringement. Yet, while making this claim, defendants also have bragged that the derivative versions of the games are functionally and visually identical to the originals and have even suggested they may be used for unauthorized modding purposes. By copying, adapting, and distributing derivative and original source code for the games, defendants have made the games fully and freely available to the public, have appropriated a market that belongs to Take-Two, namely the market for modified or handheld versions of the games, those ports that Take-Two wants to sell, and enabled countless others to now create their own unauthorized derivative versions of the games. So flat infringement, reverse engineering doesn't get you out of it, says Take-Two, and you're hurting our market in the ports that we want to sell later this year or early next. Who were the parties? We got individuals in Germany, New Zealand, Turkey, the United Kingdom. We got them all over the place. We've got John Doe's two through 10 of various names here that they don't know, but they're working to identify. Why can this be sued over in the United States? Well, For one reason, when you file a counter notice, you have to include a sentence that says something along the lines of, I consent to the jurisdiction of federal district court for the judicial district in which my address is located, and I will accept service of process from the person who provided the DMCA notification or an agent of such person. Additionally, take two claims that on the bases alleged here, all of the defendants are subject to the personal jurisdiction of this, the federal court of California, because they distributed their content to folks in the district and the United States and interacted with folks in the district and the United States. Chances are that's not going to be a problem, but I know in comments that people often ask, hey, they're not in the United States. How is this happening? Well, for one reason, if you actually go through the DMCA process, you're going to be acknowledging the jurisdiction of the United States courts. So you want to watch out for that, obviously. If you're doing that, of course, you're going to talk to counsel if you're thinking about filing anything on a legal basis. So that's the setup. Now we get into the specifics from Take-Two's standpoint. Obviously, this is a defensive document, so everything is designed in this document to be pro-Take-Two. It says, Take-Two's exclusive rights in the games include the rights to reproduce, distribute, publicly perform, and adapt the games, including by creating derivative versions and versions of the games that run on new platforms or technologies, sometimes referred to as ports. That's 17 U.S.C. 106. That's the baseline exclusive rights that a copyright holder has. And if you can't get out of that law then Take-Two is exactly right. You're infringing on their work if you create something that is derivative off of what they made. Take-Two is informed and believes, and on that basis alleges that in order to effectuate the purpose, defendants and those working in concert with them created a group of publicly available source code repositories, which we'll also see reference here as repos, on the website github.com, a website that enables members of the public to post on, collaborate on, and distribute computer source code. Over time, defendants supplemented, refined, and updated these source code repositories until they had created and posted a full set of derivative software files for the games. 
These source code files not only contain the derivative software code that enables the games to run on a player's computer, but also contain Take-Two's original digital content, such as text, character dialogue, and certain game assets. And this is buried a little bit in the middle of paragraph 23, but this is a useful leverage point for Take-Two. Obviously, VGC, some of the other reports that we saw, didn't have this piece of information in them. If it is, in fact, the case that certain aspects directly of what Take-Two has made, their code, their assets, their dialogue, their art, whatever it might be, are included on these repositories, then at least as far as those things extend, it's very, very difficult to defend on the part of the defendants here. Take-Two is informed and believes, and on that basis alleges that by combining the software contained in the RE3 GitHub repositories, or the compiled installable build linked in the repositories, with certain pre-existing assets and artwork from the games, members of the public will possess and can play complete versions of the games. These derivative versions of the games are virtually identical to the original games in function, appearance, and gameplay, except for certain variations and modifications added by defendants. And here they're describing what we saw in those articles, that this is designed to be something that interacts with a version of the game that you might otherwise have. And with that version of the game, you can play it on your Switch or your Wii U or using some of the other cheats or changes that this particular group would have afforded to you in using the game. But from Take-Two's perspective, it's essentially now Super Grand Theft Auto 3 or Switch Grand Theft Auto 3 or whatever else you might want to call it. It's a different game from the one that they made. And the law in general is going to look at that and say, yes, that is what's happening here. You are going and you're making something that is functionally identical to what something somebody else made. And the law is often going to have a problem with that. Defendants have been public about their intent to create and distribute their own pirated version of the games and have used social media and the press to promote the infringing project's visibility as well as to recruit users and developers. They're, they're being brazen with this, your honor. They're going out on Twitter. They're telling people that this is out there, including in a Eurogamer article entitled, apparently, How a Small Group of GTA Fanatics Reverse Engineered GTA 3 and Vice City Without So Far Getting Shut Down by Take-Two which, you know, thanks Eurogamer. Anytime you see an article about one of these kinds of projects, fan work or something like this, in one of those journalistic outlets, I always, as a corporate lawyer, look at it and say, I wonder how long it will be until something happens to them. Because by the time you get that level of notoriety, that's when the companies actually start paying attention to you a little bit more. Then we get a description that is cited here about what's happening. The general task is to go from machine code back to C++. To go back to C++ is no means a simple one-to-one -one mapping, but over the last 10 years or so, decompilers have appeared that help with this process. So what we typically do is we work with the output of the decompiler and massage it back into readable C++. It's like using Google Translate for software code and then looking at it and saying, well, that needs some fixing up. That's what they're doing is the fixing up, but you are winding up with something that is entirely based, derivative of the other party's source code that they have the rights to. Or as Take-Two says, in other words, defendants slavishly recreated the original code to play the games by decompiling the game's object or machine code and then working with that material to create a game experience that is identical to the original games. Defendants have also been public about adding new features to the games that may be toggled on and off by users at will, including new cheats, which are strictly prohibited under Take-Two's terms of service. More on that in just a minute. Defendants are well aware that their conduct is unlawful and infringes Take-Two's copyrights. Poppenhoff admitted that he was very much worried about that and tried to stay under the radar for as long as possible, knowing 
that as soon as Take-Two learned of the project, legal action would undoubtedly ensue. Now here is another area where I think Take-Two is fundamentally wrong. They are claiming that a developer on this project going and talking in an interview or to another party and saying, look, I hope Take-Two doesn't find this because legal action would ensue. That doesn't in any realistic way indicate that that party thinks that they are infringing on the copyright. Because as we all know, a copyright holder is going to be out there defending its copyright, whether they're right or whether they're wrong. So believing that it's better to have your head down and to not be noticed is not an admittance of guilt in any reasonable respect. It's just the practical reality that you would prefer not to be noticed by the company that owns the copyright, even if you think you're operating under fair use, even if you think you're operating under reverse engineering rules that help save you, which I think these guys appear to believe because there's nothing indicated in this document or otherwise that suggests that they don't think that that is in fact the case. So they might be wrong on that, but the fact that they don't want Take-Two looking at them, I think is just good business sense, not any indication of whether or not what they are doing is legal or not. That's important because one of the things that Take-Two is going to try to establish and has been throughout this document is that these are malicious actors that deliberately stole and knew what they were doing, Your Honor. And I don't think Take-Two makes that case. And that's important because that exposure is going to go down if they fail to. On or about February 19th, 2021, Take-Two submitted a takedown notice to GitHub pursuant to the DMCA that requested the disabling and or removal of the RE3 repositories. In at least three separate instances between April and June of 2021, the defendant submitted sworn counter notifications to GitHub claiming the takedown of the repositories was mistaken or otherwise not legitimate. Take-Two is informed and believes and on that basis alleges that these counter notifications were made in bad faith and knowingly and deliberately misrepresented to GitHub the contents of the RE3 GitHub repositories. Upon information and belief, the counter notification signed by defendant or Kunis was in fact submitted on behalf of the entire team. And they have references to the Discord conversations that happened with that submission. The reason they're making that case is because they want this particular claim to apply to all the defendants even if they aren't the signatories to the counter notification. So they're trying to establish that the whole team sent this in, which has its own kind of legal procedural problems, but that's the case they're trying to make. And then they say, by creating and distributing RE3 and REVC, defendants have appropriated for their own benefit Take-Two's immensely valuable intellectual property. Moreover, by creating derivative code in console ports of the games, defendants have sought to exploit a potential market that belongs exclusively to Take-Two. And that's the baseline rule of holding a copyright. So that's why claim one against all defendants, infringement, by copying, adapting, and distributing source code and other content related to the games, defendants have deliberately and intentionally infringed Take-Two's protectable expression. Take-Two has never authorized or given consent to defendants to use their copyrighted works in the manner complained of herein. As a direct and proximate result of the infringements alleged, Take-Two is entitled to damages and amounts to be proven at trial. Alternatively, Take-Two is entitled to maximum statutory damages of $150,000 for each work infringed, which depending on how you actually slice it, isn't the whole game. It's not $300,000. It could be each aspect of the game. It could be a whole bunch of things, depending on how aggressive they wanted to try to be with this. But this $150,000 number is why you see the adamance that what we're looking at are malicious, evil actors. Why? Because the way remedies for copyright infringement work is that the normal range is between $750 
and $30,000 as the court will determine. People have come in my social media and asked, hey, can't the court decide on things like how much money you have and how much revenue you generate, all these various other things? Yes, they can. They'll be making a determination if they find infringement based on a whole host of factors. It's essentially an equitable decision within the range. But section two here says in a case where the copyright owner sustains the burden of proving and the court finds, the court agrees with them, that the infringement was committed willfully, the court in its discretion may increase the award of statutory damages above that 30,000 topper to a sum of not more than 150,000. So take two spends the bulk of this document trying to establish that these people knew what they were doing, knew it was infringement, did it anyway, and they should be found to be in the $150,000 bucket. I don't think Take-Two succeeds on this because I don't think their interview works very well. And we're going to be talking about the second half of this with respect to 5112F in just a second. But before we do, I also mentioned before we dove into the lawsuit document itself that it wasn't just the fact that reverse engineering isn't a blanket exception that gets them into trouble. It's not just Sega versus Accolade. It's other jurisprudence. And more specifically, it's jurisprudence that talks about infringement in general, right? You may be familiar with cases like Tetris versus Zio Interactive here, but if you're not, this was a case in which a judge looked at two separate games and found there to be infringement, even though one of the companies tried desperately to not be infringing. Or as described here in the introductory paragraph, presently before the court are cross motions for summary judgment. Plaintiffs Tetris Holding and Tetris Company claim that defendant Zio Interactive has infringed the copyright and trade dress of Tetris. Zio does not raise any issue of fact in response, but makes a purely legal argument that it meticulously copied only non-protected elements, in particular the rules and functionality of the game, and not its expressive elements, and that judgment should be entered in its favor. So you've got here a case where something that looks a lot like Tetris, behaves a lot like Tetris, tried to not infringe on what the Tetris game actually is by only copying the things that related to the rules, right? The rules of a game cannot be copyrighted because ideas can't be copyrighted. Only expressions of those ideas can be copyrighted. To establish a claim of copyright infringement, a plaintiff must establish ownership of a valid copyright and unauthorized copying of original elements of the plaintiff's work. So when we're talking about video games, in a case like this, which again, isn't reverse engineered. This is not a company that went and figured out how Texas Tetris was programmed. It's a company that said, hey, those Tetris rules are pretty cool. People like playing Tetris. Let's make a Tetris clone. And the court nevertheless found this separate game to be infringing because it was too close to the original. Now, if you take that logic out to its extreme, how close is a game that functions on the Switch that looks exactly like a game that plays on the PlayStation 3 to the original PlayStation 3 game. I would argue that it's very, very close because you aren't even trying to separate your product. So reverse engineering doesn't save you. When you start to look at the facts and circumstances, the, the look and feel of how an RE3 project would actually work on the Switch or the Wii U or anywhere else, I think you get into mountains of trouble just on the overall holistic concept of copyright. That's not even bringing in whether or not you circumvented technological measures, which the Take-Two Interactive folks don't mention in this document, but could easily amend later on. That's not even mentioning how trademarks are used in materials that aren't made by a company like Take-Two or Rockstar. If you're going to incorporate using even your own game assets into something like the RE3 project, 
You're going to be incorporating brands and music and things that weren't licensed for that project. And that's going to call into question contract rights and trademark rights and all manner of other things. Or as the court says in Tetris here, at the end of the day, no matter how one expresses the test, the task is clear because copyright only protects original expression. I must delineate between the copyrightable expression in Tetris and the unprotected elements of the program, then evaluate whether there is substantial similarity between such expression and defendant's Mino game. And he finds over the course of this entire discussion that they do infringe on Tetris because there's a whole heap of court cases that say, eh, if it's really, really close, you can get in trouble. The court in the Pac-Man case says the substantial appropriation of the Pac-Man characters qualified as copyright infringement because the characters functioned in the same manner in both games. You have instances where the parties argue over a number of particular features of both games, which I will address. But before that, I note that it is appropriate to compare the two works as they would appear to a layman concentrating upon the gross features rather than an examination of minutia. You have two games that are going to look and operate and be identical once they are built with the game disc or other access that a party that uses this has. And that's going to get in trouble at a baseline holistic infringement level, regardless of how it was made. Reverse engineering doesn't protect you more. It's just another avenue that you could potentially get into trouble because they can put in their filings that you deliberately touched their code in order to make what you were making. On top of that, you might well get into trouble if you're developing a project like this because the end of the story is not the exceptions for reverse engineering or the Sega versus Accolade case or line of cases. No, there is more going on with respect to those questions. I've now brought up the Blizzard case in which a number of developers were trying to make essentially Battle.net function for private parties. And the court found that even though it was reverse engineered, that didn't help them. Why? It says appellants contractually accepted restrictions on their ability to reverse engineer by their agreement to the terms of the TOU and EULA. Private parties are free to contractually forego the limited ability to reverse engineer a software product under the exemptions of the Copyright Act. And a state can permit parties to contract away a fair use defense or to agree not to engage in uses of copyrighted material that are permitted by the copyright law if the contract is freely negotiated. More on that in a second. By signing the TOUs and end user license agreements, appellants expressly relinquish their rights to reverse engineer. And you know where this is going probably already. We look at the Rockstar Games end user license agreement. Here is 2019. So it's probably an earlier version that would apply, but it wouldn't surprise me if language identical to this appeared in that version as well. Subject to this agreement and its terms and conditions, licensor hereby grants you a non-exclusive, non-transferable, limited and revocable right and license to use one copy of the software for your personal non-commercial use for gameplay on a single game platform as intended by licensor. You agree not to, big list of things, reverse engineer, decompile, disassemble, display, perform, prepare derivative works based on or otherwise modify the software in whole or in part. Which means if you got a copy of one of these games and, and maybe you can go back and find a copy of Grand Theft Auto 3 that doesn't have this specific language and this doesn't come up as a problem. You still have the other issues that you need to worry about. But Assuming that you did, assuming that you got rights to this particular software and had these restrictions placed upon them, the courts have held 
And this isn't the Ninth Circuit. This is, I believe, an Eighth Circuit decision quoting a Third Circuit decision and a Second Court decision. We're looking at a Ninth Circuit case. So you could have a complete deviation there on these things. The courts have held in certain respects that you enter into an end user license agreement says you won't reverse engineer. You've waived any right that you might have otherwise had to reverse engineer on interoperability grounds or otherwise. And that would appear to be the case here as a baseline. Now, there are arguments against that. You might notice things about references to freely negotiated. This particular court thinks a EULA accomplishes that. Other courts, maybe even in the Ninth Circuit, that doesn't necessarily like click-through agreements or end-user license agreements, they might find that those kinds of broad, non-negotiated documents don't rise to this level. And so that doesn't constitute a waiver of reverse engineering as a matter of fact. The point is, however, that there are all manner of reasons to believe that this is a potential infringement and that reverse engineering doesn't get you out of that conversation, doesn't get you out of that discussion. In my opinion, looking at this from afar, and certainly like every other infringement case would be based on the facts and circumstances that I don't have, that a judge would be evaluating, it looks very much to me like we're looking at an infringement kind of case. However, I do give the developers the benefit of the doubt here, and I don't see anything that suggests that they believed that they were infringing as presented by Take-Two, which again should be their strongest arguments here. And if they can't show that they believe they were infringing, I think they're going to get out of the biggest issues here. I think you find yourself in the $750 to $30,000 category, not the $150,000 category. And I think when you get to claim two here, where Take-Two wants to accuse them of breaching the DMCA with their counter notice, I think pretty flatly, the ambiguities here make Take-Two wrong. They say the developers filed a counter notice claiming that the information was removed and disabled by GitHub by mistake because the code in this repo was developed by reverse engineering object code that is not contained in this repo. We believe that any code in this repo that is similar to code or other content owned by Take-Two is either unprotected by copyright or is permitted under fair use. Now, understand these developers, I presume, aren't lawyers. So they're filing a counter notice on their information and belief, a phrase we see in this lawsuit a bunch. And the law doesn't require you to be a lawyer. In fact, the standard for actually having a 512F problem is so, so very high that we've talked about it extensively in virtual legality as essentially not binding the copyright holders, that they're filing DMCA takedown notices and all sorts of things that are clearly not copyright infringement because the standard is you have to knowingly and materially misrepresent that there's an infringement or that a mistake was made. Knowingly is not something that can be attributed to constructively. The person that actually files this counter notice has to know that they're lying when they do so. And I don't see any reason to believe that they don't think like VGC does, that they don't think like Eurogamer does, that they didn't read Sega versus Accolade and say, yeah, I think we're pretty good there. Or that nobody could find terms of service for a game as old as Grand Theft Auto 3, even though I suspect that they still existed even at that time. And so they looked at it and said, we could file a counter notice because we're not using the words that they made for their source code. We're decompiling them and doing something different. And I have reason to believe if I'm the developer that maybe I'm okay, because this is a wild gray area. We're 40 minutes into a video about how gray this area is. Similarly, when they say, well, we counter, it's a result of mistake or misidentification of the material to be removed or disabled. They're stating that they aren't claiming, Take-Two isn't claiming the actual words that they put in their source code, that this is a mistake because that's not what this is. And they do it again. And Take-Two says that this was willful and malicious and taken in bad faith. 
They materially misrepresented that they re- their, their respective counter notices were removed or disabled by mistake or misidentification. To the contrary, the defendants were submitting their counter notices to GitHub in bad faith. Each defendant knowing that the repositories listed in their respective counter notices contain derivative source code and original source code that infringes Take-Two's copyrights. Original source code meaning Take-Two's? That's a different question. Or do they just mean original source code actually written by these developers to do the various things like cheats and whatnot? It's a little bit unclear from just that paragraph. But I don't see a 512F issue here. And if you don't have a 512F issue here, and if you got the paragraph above that says, well, your honor, he said that he didn't want us looking at him. That means he knew it was illegal. I just don't track with that logic. So I do think that Take-Two makes a pretty good case that there's infringement here. I think that the product that would actually go out on the market could impact their ability to sell ports, that they didn't license out the right to do these kinds of things. If they can show terms of service that directly apply to something like Grand Theft Auto 3 or Grand Theft Auto Vice City, then that'll be an even stronger argument to say, well, they agreed that they wouldn't reverse engineer this. They waived any rights to fair use that they might have. It isn't really an interoperability issue. I think that you've got a fairly strong infringement case if you're take two. You probably don't have as strong of an infringement case on the notion that they are deliberately, willfully, maliciously infringing because... I don't think the law should hold folks to being the standards of intellectual property lawyers. And I think if you file a counter notice, yes, you should 100% go get counsel on that. But saying, I believe reverse engineering is legal. We've seen articles even today that suggest that to the layman that is reading about this story. I can't look at that and say that they knowingly and materially misled when they filed that counter notice. They thought they were right. And I don't think we as lawyers, copyright folks, society members, want to disadvantage folks for essentially asserting what they think are their rights, even if they are mistaken. And that's why the standard is set the way it is for counters. It's it's set that way to say, if you're mistaken, that's all right. God knows that Sony has been mistaken in the way it is filed DMCA takedown notices. Universal has. That's where you get the major lawsuits on these questions. But they don't suffer from 512F because mistake is not penalized. You have to be a deliberately bad actor. And I think it's very, very difficult to accuse anyone in this story of deliberately acting badly. Again, this video has been sponsored by one of our special sponsors this month, Falkus Vipus. Thank you so much for sponsoring Virtual Legality. If you would like to sponsor us or do something else to support the channel, please consider checking out our Patreon. We've got other ways to support the channel and the discussion of business and law, technology, and video games throughout. Or if you just want to subscribe and tell your friends, every little bit helps. I think we're having important educational and hopefully entertaining conversations here. So please do tell those friends. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.